something I want you to do for me. What? Come here. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tim Gaither Podcast, episode 34. Uh, my guest today is going to be Matt Edgar, one of my favorite young comics down at the Comedy Store. And uh, I've also got some new tour dates. So I don't normally call them tour dates. I think that sounds kind of uh, pretentious, my tour dates, because it's not like I have a fucking bus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um so my road dates, the dates that I've got coming up, I've added some stuff. Uh, this Friday, if you're in Long Beach, I'm going to be at the Laugh Factory. And November 10th and 11th, I'm going to be at the Blue Room Comedy Club. November, or excuse me, December 7th through 9th. I'm going to be at Hyenas in Dallas. And the 14th through the 16th, I'm going to be at Hyenas in Plano. The 27th through the 30th, I'm going to do a feature set at the uh, Kansas City Improv. Guy Tori is going to headline, and I'm going to feature, and I'm going to try out some of this new stuff I've been working on. So I'm going to make a little money, I'm going to try out some new stuff, and see some family, and that'll be cool. And then January, I'm going to be at the Looney's Comedy Club in Colorado Springs at the 11th through the 13th of January, 25th through the 27th of January. I'll be at the Looney Bin in Wichita, and in February, I will also be at the Looney Bin in Tulsa on February 21 through 24. So check out timgathercomedy.com for upcoming dates and I will be uh, booking a lot of stuff in the next uh, next couple of weeks and months I would think for 2018 or I better be. So yeah check out that and uh, some other stuff I'm going to be having on YouTube and my guest today like I said is Matt Edgar. Matt has been around for a uh, a while at the comedy store, even though he's a young guy, and uh, just a good dude. One of the younger guys in comedy that, he just gets it, you know, and uh, wants to get better all the time, and, and you know, I like those kind of guys, and funny guy, and uh, if I can find his freaking number, we're going to call him. All right, everybody, here we go, Matt Edgar. Hi, Matt Edgar. How you doing, buddy? Doing good, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, thanks for answering on the first ring. Most comics make it ring like four fucking times. <laughs> I didn't want to keep it sweating. I was uh, <laughs> locked and loaded here. <laughs> cool, man. Um, what are you doing today? Uh, you know how it is, Tim. Just doing some writing, preparing for uh, hopefully shows. So, so you're not really yeah. doing shit? Yeah, I take the nap. <laughs> I, uh, and I'm just, I'm just writing shit right now. I may or may not try it out tonight. You yeah, know. yeah oh well, I, I think it's important to do that whether you're going to try that stuff out or not. Just uh, just to kind of get your mind that way. And, and they say that, 
there's some book that uh, the artist way or something like that where part of it is you wake up and you just write three pages just kind of like stream of conscious like it doesn't even have to really make sense just the the practice of doing it every day and and some of the this author I was reading about what talk, talked about how he wrote every day from like 10 to 2 just like business hours even if it was complete shit he knew that he had done it for the day and that ultimately led to you know a lot of stuff because because I'm sure you sit down and once you put your head into it you're like well shit I write I wrote all this crap <laughs> why don't I just do this every day and I'd be famous but that's usually just not how it works <laughs> what su- it sucks when you're when when you're all fired up about something and then about halfway through it you're like uh, I don't I'm really losing steam for for how much I give a shit about this topic <laughs> Well, I get it back. Or did I ever even care to begin with? Because 
everything that happens, it's like today, like the whole like Kevin Spacey thing comes out about you know you, you know he got handy with some fourteen year old kid you know thirty years ago or whatever. And like, yeah. Is there an obligation where like do we do I have to write about that? I feel like the first thing I think of is funny stuff, but then I don't really care. You know what I mean? And I don't really. It's it's something that I wouldn't. I normally don't talk about current events and stuff, but there's like this obligation to being a comedy writer. Like, yeah, at least try to write something, you know? Try yeah. to write something about it. It's right there. I had thoughts and feelings about it. Am I going to pursue them? Am I going to keep them going and actually turn into a joke? Probably not. But it's just about putting it on the paper. Like you're saying, like you write so much and just, just be practice writing. I don't even I don't even know what did Kevin Sp- what happened with Kevin Spacey? I mean, I always knew he was gay. I heard something about he came out and I'm like, Well, I always knew he was gay, but I don't know yeah, how I knew I thought, that. I but biggest movies like this director totally went to bat for him to get him on the on the movie and then and then he fucked like his like his 19 year old uh, boyfriend or something Jesus Christ <laughs> <laughs> so, so the guy was like the guy was totally like I will not do this movie unless Kevin Spacey's the guy and then uh, he brings his boyfriend on set and Kevin Spacey fucks him <laughs> that's just that's just what I heard I don't know if it's true or not but uh but it's my job to spread hey, rumors. Not, you, you shouldn't fuck the boss's boyfriend. Right? Yeah. Like, well, especially after he totally goes to bat, he's like, "I'll shut down production if he's not the guy." And they're like, "Okay, fine." Yeah, <laughs> I'd dude, like you to I meet mean, my boyfriend. God, dude, this guy must have been this nineteen-year-old boyfriend must have been amazing. I mean, you throw away like that kind of like career bump for like. Some dick. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I guess I could be making a, like a stupid move in the in the name of you know women. So like, yeah. Well, I, I don't know how much it hurt him. I mean, he's he's doing this was a long time ago. Well, it obviously didn't hurt him at all because he went on to win two Academy Awards after that. But and, so he got handsy know, with some. He got handsy with a fourteen year old, and now the guy's yeah. coming out about it because of all the. Yeah, basically. Basically, this guy, I mean, you know, I mean, it's the season to, like, call these people out. It's a real, you know, it's a witch hunt. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I don't know what prompted this kid or this guy to do it now, but, uh, it, you know, they're shutting down the show, too. That's what I heard. I mean. Because of that? That's the first, yeah, yeah, that was the headline that I saw was that House of Cards just canceled, uh, uh, Kevin Spacey, whatever. I was like, what? Like, that? So canceling, that's like a huge show. And then, yeah, it's part of the whole sex scandal. Huh. And then I started thinking, like, you know how, like, uh, 
lot of because the pendulum swings both ways, and it's good that people are getting called on this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, it's also going to open up the floodgates for people to you know, it's like some boy who cried wolf shit, where um, maybe it didn't. You know, like where's the line? Like, who do you believe? Like, some of these people, uh, you know, like some people are going to come out and say something happened to them that it maybe nothing really did happen to them. Oh yeah, that's the problem with everything. There's always some fucker who (laughs) has to ruin it for everyone. You know, whether it's getting free drinks at the club, or it's that comic who comes in and drinks nine hundred dollars worth of shit, and no one else can ever do it again. You know, it's (laughs) that is like that is the greatest metaphor for that thing. You're absolutely right. It's like when something's free and cool, but you got to keep your mouth kind of shut. It's free for us, you know. Like we're all playing cool, and like you remember. Do you remember when, uh, do you remember Ryan Burbis as the bartender oh. at the comedy store? Oh, yeah, of course. Huge guy. I mean, that guy, yeah, yeah, that guy was just throwing drinks out. Just throwing drinks. You, you wouldn't even ask. You, you just go up to the bar and then you just <laughs> slam a drink on for you. And it was cool. You know, everybody, and then, you know, you start knowing that this guy's that cool and then people would fight their friends and their friends are all getting hooked up. And then it was like, all right, you know, now they, you know, they crack down on that sort of thing. Like, he, too many people took advantage of how generous Merv was with the drinks, and now that's not a thing anymore. Everybody's got to pay. Yeah, like, I like always that. sell my t-shirts after shows to, uh, if staff wants them, I give them to them for, for half of what I would charge a normal person, and... And 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 then they're and then I'm they're like buying four of them and shit for their family and I'm like, hey, take it easy, motherfucker. Now you're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> you can only be so nice until you're just gonna get taken advantage of. How long have you been doing comedy now, Matt? Ten years, Tim. Wow. So you started. I've been out in L.A. for gosh, I don't even know how long it's been anymore. Eight or nine years. So. Yeah, I remember when you first made the move. You were already a headline. And, and you know what, I remember specifically, uh, because he, he used to go there on the potluck nights, yeah. where, you know, you didn't have to be a paid regular to get up, and, and actually, you 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 had one of the easiest, uh, for just from outside looking in, I don't know how easy it actually was, but you got, you got right in there pretty, relatively easy to a lot of people that were pushing for that position for, like, years, you, you came right in, and, like, within a few months, you're... You know, you're paid regular. Yeah, I have Eleanor Kerrigan to thank more than anything because she got me up in front of Tommy. Um, at, like I, I had, it was a the room was pretty full and and she was able to get me up right in front of him and and uh, and it happened to go well and and then he started uh, and then there was a showcase coming up and they put me on it and uh, I was one of the last people that got that actually got passed by Mitzi, which I think kind of messed me up a little bit with Tommy because, you know, there were things I liked about Tommy, but there were also things I wanted to murder him for, and, uh... everyone's relationship with that guy. Yeah, and one of the things was I felt like since he didn't pass me, he wanted to, I mean, really stick it to me about every little thing. You know, like, I went through this, I went through this period where, like, I'd have good shows, and he'd be like, I heard you were terrible the other night, and I'm like... Who the yeah, fuck is... I'm like, who told you that shit? It's so weird how he would do that. Because then he, he would say things like that, but then, you know, you'd see him a week later, and it was and it's like the opposite. Like, I heard good things about you. You know, like, 
Yeah. He never knew, like, what side he was playing. And he definitely had a thing with, like, people that he passed versus people that were passed by Mitzi. I mean, he, I don't know, dude. But the sad thing about Tommy is that, at least, you know, I think we kind of caught the tail end of him doing that job good. You know what I mean? Like, because there was, I mean, as much shit as we could talk on the guy and as much shit is talked on the guy, he had a lot for the store. I mean, like, yeah. he got there, it, you know, Missy was out, and, nobody, I, and and Duncan Trussell was running it. Like, I agree with that, you know, dude, 100%. And, yeah, I mean, and like, and as cool as Duncan is, he's such a great stand-up, knows comedy, he, he wasn't a talent coordinator, so he was a, you know, he was a passing people and, and you know, half-assing the lineup, and Tommy just kind of came in and, and took out a lot of the trash, you know, and, and like, cleaned up, and then you get guys like, you know, that's when you get, uh, like, you know, Sebastian is writing and John Caparulo and even Steve Renazizi, Ari. Like, you start, like, making these lineups that are, like, people that are pretty much, you know, successful now. Back then they were up-and-comers, but he, he had an eye for it for a minute, you know? Like, mm-hmm. he also gave Whitney so much, and there was so much, like, backlash she got for helping Whitney out. And then, like, it turns out, she, you know, she was a star in the making. Same goes for Dalia. This was all stuff that Tommy kind of saw. Nobody really told him that. And, and the guy never watched comedy outside of the comedy store. Like, he wasn't influenced by who was making it in Comedy Central or, in, you know, in television or anything like that. He literally just would watch you and he would get a feeling. And whether his feeling was right or wrong, he went with his gut, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was right for, for a while. And then I think what happened was, like any job, you know, he just kind of started to get over it. And, like, I remember... When, when I used to work there, he would be the first one there, last one to leave, every night. Every night, he'd be the guy that turned on the lights at the end of it. He watched the whole thing. Yeah. In the last few years, he was out of there. By 10 p.m., he was up in his office smoking weed. It was like, it was just, there's zero effort. Didn't really know what was going on. It was kind of making the same lineups again. And I think what really pissed people off, and I know it pissed me off, was that when he got to that point, he would every now and then try to, like, uh, do something like make a decision based off his feelings, but it was like he wasn't even there. Like back when he used to have like he, I had big feelings. That's how he he always described it. Like I, well, I got a feeling. Okay, it's all my feelings. <laughs> it's all about his feelings. And, he, and back in the day, I believed it because well, for one, I'm like 21, 22 years old, and this guy's like a grown man in his 40s telling me, you know, his feelings. I'm, so I'm just believing it because I don't know what to think. Yeah. I'm brand new out here. And then, <laughs> and then I started realizing that like, he would talk about his feelings about people and I, I would just be like, I don't think you even know what this guy's doing. Like, when do you watch, you know, so-and-so? When do you, like, what do you, like, really know about it? And then it was, I kind of, you know, he just lost his, he lost the, the joy of being a talent creator. It just became like a regular job. Yeah, and I also yeah. think there was an aspect of him that thought that, like, after a while, because he, he was, you know, he did care a lot about comedy, and he seemed to really know what he was talking about when it came, you know, and he emulated, he emulated Mitzi's, her, her ways pretty well, and then, like you said, not only, not only the job kind of became mundane to him, but he also probably started believing that he was, like, especially the more weed he smoked, he probably believed that he was, like, a bigger deal than he was, you know, like almost more of a guru. And when you start thinking that yeah. about yourself, you're fucked, you know. Like well, if, also, it's like it's like anybody with power, you know, you don't have somebody to like uh, humble you because you know he was the man over there. Like he was 
the law and order of the comedy store. And nobody was really, you know, nobody was challenging him. So it really was just him up in that office or in that cover booth, you know, just smoking all the pot that he could and, and making these choices with no outside influence. Like, nobody to tell him what to do. Yeah. And I think after about a decade of that, you know, you, you do kind of lose your mind. Yeah. Like, you need somebody else. I don't think any comedy club as big as the comedy store should have just one guy running the whole show. That's a lot for that one guy to keep track of as many, especially the stores, the huge roster. You know, I mean, there's a lot of us that, that Adam now has to, like, consider, you know, and he also got to consider what's going on in, in comedy as a whole, not just the comedy store. Who does he need to develop? And there's so much more to it. It'd be, it'd be good if there's, like, kind of like a, like a committee, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like where there's, like, a few people... And some people, their job is to watch late night, and some people are in here these nights, and, and kind of organize it better. That way it's not just one guy's choice, because that's what people hate about Tommy the most, is like, you know, it, you, it's hard to not take that personally, because it is just like, first of all, you've devoted, if you're, a, if you've got to the stature of paid regular at the store, or even, I mean, it, it, it's not, that's not the only way to feel this way, but if you were, if you are that far into your comedy journey or whatever you want to call it, that means you've already thrown your whole life into it, like, it's yeah. personal. So anything that gets, like, anything that he says to you about what you do, it's like, they're all fight words. Oh, you know? dude. Like, it, it, Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, man, like, he, like, he said that thing to you, like, oh, I heard you did that. It's like, dude, I was bitch like, when you, like, whenever do you feel like, like, <laughs> I remember looking at Tommy, me and Hinchcliffe used to talk about this a lot, and every now and then we still bring it up, but we would have, like, these dreams, dude, and we're like, uh, we just see ourselves just ringing in Tommy's face, and just, like, <laughs> it's like this weird dream, and we cut, it was recurring, like, we keep on having it, like, every, every couple of weeks we'd have, where I'm just like, just fuck you, you know, like, at the top of my lungs, yeah. you know, and it's like, and I wake up and I'm pissed, you know what I mean, like, yeah. I just got done yelling all night and I wake up, that's how I start my day. And uh, it was funny because I just had one of those drinks like a couple two weeks ago and I, and I brought it up to Tony, we laughed about it. So we haven't seen this guy in years. He had no effect on our lives <clears throat> in years. But I just like, it's almost like there's like this weird Tommy PTSD that we got. Like, Dude, one time I was in, uh, I was in the South Bay. I was like in Redondo Beach or something it was when I was drinking. And I've mellowed out a lot since I quit drinking. But but I was uh, on the phone. I called Tommy about La Jolla or something, and and that's when he started in, or the the uh, that's when he started in telling me that shit about. It. I heard you were terrible, and I was like, actually, I had a, I was like, I you know, I'm pretty hard on myself, so I know when I've had a bad set. <coughs> and I remember telling Tommy, I was like, no, dude, actually, I I had a pretty good set there, and that's when he was like, I heard you were terrible, and he started saying all this mean shit. And I was drinking, but I was too far away to do anything. And then a few weeks later, I called him again, and I was like 10 minutes away in Hollywood, and he started in with that shit again. I heard you were terrible again. And I go, Tommy, the last time you started telling me this shit, I was an hour away. I go, now I'm 10 minutes away, and if you don't change your tune, I'm going to come up there and kick your ass. And he started... You you are an exit away from a... And uh, that didn't that didn't help me out getting any spots, but uh, uh. <laughs> so funny, dude. Hey, man, I've seen people. I'm surprised that he, he didn't ever 
people lose their shit on them. Where it, just like you, like, you know, like, you could say that bullshit to you and you're an hour away on the phone and you're like, fuck, you'll scream as soon as you get off the phone, you know, punch a wall, whatever. Yeah. But these, some people, he, he actually would say it to their face behind the cover booth and, like, most of us, I, I think most of us just, like, were able to, I don't know, somehow, like, not get too effective. Like, you almost kind of are so dumbfounded that somebody would talk to you like that, that it's like, you freeze up. Like, what, wait, yeah. Like, you're walking away, like, wait, did that motherfucker? And it's, like, too late to do anything. But every now and then, it was beautiful, man. He would say something, and there'd just be, you know, it would just be bad right there at the cover booth. Like, people would have to, I remember one guy had to get pulled out, you know, it's like, like, I mean, it, it would happen every so often. Rick Ingram used to give him the business a lot. Like, like some people just did not take his shit at all. Well, he and, would, he would say, of- he would say things. One time, one time I had just headlined the Cleveland Improv, like, and I got home, it was like on, I got done on Sunday and it was Monday night and I was feeling all good about myself and uh, I asked I asked Tommy I was like hey man uh, you think I get a main room spot and he goes you're not ready for that dude and I was like (laughs) I was like you don't think I'm ready to do 15 minutes in front of a sold out audience I'm pretty sure I can handle that you know Uh, yeah you get the scene at by that point I mean that's what you're doing for a living yeah what you can't handle it but but there's something about that little fucker that he'd say something like that, and as much as you wanted to kill him, you're like, God, am I ready for it? And you're like, Yes, you fucking psycho. You know, he's he's just just that little. Anyway, what's the craziest fucking thing you've ever seen happen at the comedy store? Cause you you worked there for how long? Oh man, I think I worked there for about four years until I was passed, and I'm still there, you know, multiple times a week, and I've have been for. In ten years, so I've seen a lot of shit, dude. That's that's one of those. It's like it's almost like an unsanctioned building where, like, as soon as you walk in, like, it's Thunderdome, like, like international waters. It's like there's no. I don't even know if there's a law of the land. Like, like we have security there now. Like back then, like when I was a door guy, like, dude, I was security, so like nothing was getting done. Like everybody was just being done. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Matt Edgar on security. <laughs> the worst security team I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> it's I mean, literally, like, we, we had nothing. I mean, one of the first times, uh, one of the first times I worked, I was always in the, in the parking lot. Like, that was my shit. I loved it out there. I had to deal with customers. It was all for, like, paid regulars, you know? Like, I was only talking to you and, like, people pulling in and, you know, getting in their car. So, no drama or anything like that. It was a hard job because that's I don't know how you do that shit. Well, I fucked up all the time. (laughs) So nobody does that job perfectly. Yeah. Um, But uh, uh, the first time I ever worked that shift was on a Trippin' on Tuesday back when they said like black shows at the comedy store. And Trippin' on Tuesday was like the coolest show of the week. I mean, this guy, Jeru Tillman, ran it. He packed it out. And like, but just the best comedian. I remember Earthquake was like the host. Uh Can you imagine like, like, it, like, a show where, like, the host is, like, Earthquake. Like, one of the biggest, you know, touring comedians that there were at the time. And yeah. 
you know, and he, he sounds just the guy bringing up the comics. So I loved it, dude. I, those, I get tips and stuff, but the first night, like, I didn't know anybody. And they used to have security. It was the only night that had security. And the security was bought by the show. They weren't comedy store security. It was like, Triple on Tuesday had their own security guard. These two uh, gigantic brothers, uh, Al and Jimmy, Big Al and Big Jimmy, you know, they you know, they grew up just being badasses together. Yeah. And uh, they, they, you know, that was their job was like to keep it all safe in there. And uh, uh, I remember the first time I was there, David Berger was teaching me how to work that shift. And like those guys pulled in. He's like, oh, dude, Matt, you got to tell them that they can't park here. <laughs> to these two Goliaths, like, hey, guys, I'm sorry, but you, you can't park here. He's like, <laughs> Jimmy's like, all right, well, then move us. And I was like, oh, this is going to suck. Again, like, again, like, there's no way I'm, I'm, getting, I'm telling anybody they have to leave or anything like that. But um, it was an awesome, like, it, Argus said it best, dude, about working at the comedy store. Argus Hamilton was like, because he used to work there way back in the day. He's like, dude, if you could tell somebody to get out of the parking lot or you could you see people, you tell, tell them when to sit, where to sit, well, that means you could tell them when to laugh. You know, it just teaches you to be assertive working there. Yeah, that's a good especially, point. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're literally like, uh, I was, man, dude, I'm like, I'm five foot ten. Like, I think back then I weighed like, I wasn't even 140 pounds, dude. I'm like telling these people, like, get the fuck out of this parking lot. Like, I'm never talking to anybody like that before the comedy store like that program like it works if you follow it right yeah the thing I think I've seen there like honestly there's a, there's a few lot come to mind but I think the one thing that sticks out if anybody were to ask that like you did I think the uh, the oh there's, there's two I'll give you the, the first one uh, uh, the big dick contest we had with the porn star in the original room <laughs> okay did, did you ever hear about that I don't think I have no And it just became 
on up, get, get them on up here. And it's like, there's actual audience members in the crowd that, that paid for a ticket to go see a comedy show. Wow. And now they're sitting there watching <laughs> two comedians that they've already seen do their stand-up that night. And then, like, this chick just, they sit on a chair and, and then she, like, literally gives them a blowjob in front of this audience and just figure out who's dick is bigger. And all the while, like, while this is going on, I'm in the back, like, I, I met, met this girl, uh, we're in the back fooling around, and then, like, uh, I, as she leaves, I start walking back in, I remember thinking, like, like, dude, like, I'm the, I'm totally the only guy that got to see a naked girl here tonight, <laughs> and I walk into the OR, and there's, like, literally a blowjob contest going on, oh, she's butt naked, by the way, like, like, the girl is butt naked, like, blowing these two guys, PJ. Stanberry's right there with his little phone, like... Of course like, he was. Like, oh, uh. He was in a nasty position. He was, like, right underneath the girl filming it. And, like, just walked right into that. And it was so casual and a bunch of laughs. It was just another night at the comedy store back then. Man, I couldn't... I could you do that? Like, I don't... I if it, With an audience, I think... I don't know, man. I don't think I could even... I, I even, mean, it, I think it would take a certain amount of booze to... Like, I don't know. I don't, probably not. There are some people that can just get on stage and do anything in front of anyone, and good for them, but fuck, I'm not that dude. Hell yeah. No, no, dude. I mean, I, I think about my family. I think about, like, I, this is too much baggage I'm carrying. I couldn't do that. But, but those two guys, like, it, it was on, dude. They were right, though. It was, like, it was about it being funny. And it was so funny. Yeah, I'm sure. The other sure. thing I could think of, too, like, like you know Don Barris, he's like, he's like a mastermind at, like, manipulating people to do die bidding. You know what I mean? Kind of a cult leader among, like, insane people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I, yeah. You know, like, it the, does the to me. Gong show, he just, he literally picks up these transients and then next thing you know, they're, like, at the comedy store and he's got them on stage and, like, like you know, he's pretty, it's crazy the way he, like, he gets them to do stuff. Well, one night, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how he met this girl, but she was in the audience porn star, another porno person hanging out at the store. Uh, Sophia Leone, I believe, it was the porn star's name. And I only remember that because uh, Madonia was like super about her. And she had Sophia Leone. I just remember the name. Like, oh, that's cool. Just, you know, I, I don't, rec- I didn't recognize her, but cool, cool enough girl, yeah. person. I was like chit-chatting with her a little bit earlier. And then, uh, I go in and Don's on stage. And now, remember when we used to bring the band up, like the air guitar band, the, the Barris Kennedy Overdrive? Yeah. Like Don Barris, Ur- Earl Skakel, and like some people playing air guitars, like. Yeah, his girlfriend. You know, and, and shit like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Mary Jane's on bass. Yeah. I mean, that was like every night would end that way. And it was fun, dude. It was like a party. It was like a karaoke party, kind of. And, uh,. I walked in there, and then that girl I had met like an hour prior, like uh, she's like literally having sex, like on the on the side of the stage with like some dude. Wow. While Barris, while Barris Kennedy Overdrive rocking out to like Teenage Wasteland or whatever that song is. <laughs> I see it clear as day when I think about it, like that Bob O'Reilly song, the Teenage Wasteland. Whenever I hear that song, I, I see the porn stars literally having sex in the original room of the concert during the show. There's, there's audience people, like I said, I can't stress enough. These people are paying customers there to watch comedy. Now they're literally watching sex. I wonder but if anyone ever complains. Comedy. Dude, I wondered about that. Because one time, a girl came in and got naked and 
got up on stage and like Don, same thing. Don's just like masterminding the whole thing and like remember, for some reason Ari was on stage. I don't remember what the situation was for that, but these two uh, probably some middle aged women were there and they were very offended by it. I remember thinking like back then, like see, this is the kind of thing that gets cool places shut down because they were like they're not happy about it. Like we want to talk to the manager, but then you know the manager's like Ryan Goldfinger, who's just. <laughs> Who's also, while he's managing, like, has a illegal gambling ring happening in the kitchen with the bartender <laughs> hug and all the shady people that would come by. Like, no, we'll, be, we'll get right on that, man. You know, like, nothing's getting done, dude. <laughs> yeah, that OR, man, that's a, uh, that, that's, that's a great, there's no, I tell people all the time, there's no better room in the country for making your material conversational. You know, because you yeah. you kind of have to almost. I learned that pretty quickly there. You almost have to disguise your jokes to make sure to make it sound like to make it sound even more like it's just coming off the top of your head, even more than you know. Because that's yeah, the idea. Well, that's always the idea anyway. But at the comedy store, it's almost like the crowd is like, "We know that's a bit," you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, they see right through that. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. I think a lot of it has to do with the physical design of the room also. Because, you know, it's you know, those lights right there, they're kind of blinding you. Yeah. And you, you only get to see, like, a few rows of the audience. And I think when you see the whole audience, like, if you go any other club, you know, and it's sold out like an improv, and so you see the whole audience, you really, as a performer, you get that sense that this is just the performance. I am performing right now. When you can't see the audience, it, it's almost like it's happening in your head. It's like the only way to pierce the, that in-between of like you and the audience is to be conversational. And I think you're, you're definitely in that room. You're forced to. Yeah. Did, you ever, uh, did you ever have any trouble? Like, you're already a headliner like doing your own thing. With, you had your voice by the time you got to the store. Was, was there like a period where – and I know you did have this period. It was quick because you got the hang of that room pretty quickly, but – that, that must have been hard to not start there. Like, I, I've always known that room. That's where I started comedy. So, like, I can't imagine what it's like to, you know, be a headlining guy and going out there, you have your way of doing comedy. It's been working for you. And then you go and you get you get thrown into this situation. Was was there any kind of, like, you had to get your sea legs or, like, adjusting to that room? Well, I, gosh, I still, you know, that room is still so humbling. Like, you can have a, you can have a great set there and... It's one of the only rooms where I still feel good for like two days after I've had a good set in the in the OR, and then it means more. Yeah, and then you can go in there and still be kind of on that high and just eat it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, always, uh, you know how like so another like little uh, slice of wisdom by Argus Hamilton he used to say like the first time I got to go to La Jolla like back then like. They're just starting with like door guys opening up in La Jolla. So like some of our first like, especially for me, like my first like actual like road shows were at you know La Jolla Comedy Store. It's like a little treat that uh, Tommy would give us, you know, like go open the show and we do like five to ten minutes. Like literally, it's like it's because we only have like we're talking the first few months of doing comedy. Like you get a cool little like you know remember when you first started. Sometimes you're you find yourself in. Uh, situations you, you you definitely don't belong in. Like you don't deserve to be doing comedy in front of sold out rooms and like 
Like, we, we, you know, and then you either, like, bomb in front of a lot of people or you do okay, and, like, well, and, the first time. And, uh, and, uh, one of the, I was just going to say real quick for the people listening that La Jolla Comedy Store is in San Diego and the paid regulars um, are allowed to do to go down there and do weeks and when you do it's just it's just a tr- like he said it's a treat because you're like on this condo right on the beach and like you know all the shit that's gone on in that condo and it's ho- oh, yeah. so historical and you know Sam Kennison's been in there doing rails and Humping prostitutes, oh, yeah. and normally that'd be kind of gross, but it's kind of cool since it's. <laughs> in, in this situation, it's an honor, you know. Like, yeah, like, like, yeah. You look at some of the, you look at the coffee table, and you're like, you can't send it cook right there. I'm gonna eat a burrito off of it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but uh, I would. Uh, I remember the first time I went down there, and you go, and dude, it's it's seriously, it's cutting butter. The, the fans of La Jolla are so great. Like the room is so. I mean, it's good. It's a little too good. You can't believe it. I mean, you can you can feel like a rock star for a weekend, and it's not like real comedy. Like you, you don't get a sense. Like especially if you're just doing like when I first started. Like I was I was mostly in the original room where I'm doing open mics around town. Like I wasn't killing. You know what I mean? Like nobody. Like we were struggling and learning how to do this thing. But then you go to La Jolla and then you would kill in front of like packed house, and they're like, "What? The, that's what it feels like." Like that's. I'm a comedian now. And then Argus calls it, when you, when you come back to the original room after a weekend in La Jolla, mm-hmm. and you just get humbled, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a, a, a cold bucket of water. Like, you're just, you're on cloud nine, and everything is great. You're totally a comedian now, and, and you're owing it. And then you go to the original room, and it's just, you wake up. Like, no, 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 you're back. You're back down here with the rest of us. Yeah, I've, uh... Like, I was just in La Jolla, and it, it is true. It's one of those. I was there about a month ago, two months ago, maybe. God, time time goes so fast, but it was uh, it was great. And it's one of those. Uh, it's a treat room, you know. It's one of those rooms where you're like, it's kind of your reward for all the bullshit you have to deal with. Um, just, Absolutely, it's you such know, a reward. Yeah, the Addison Improv is that way. The La Jolla Comedy Store. Um, there, there's a, there's a few places in the country that if you can't do well at, you just shouldn't do comedy. <laughs> oh, it's a great, it's a great gauge of if you're even supposed to be doing this. You might be wasting your time. I mean, I'm telling you, dude, I, I was three months into stand up, so like super young, the no experience in life or comedy at all. And I went in there, and and I'm sure it was a horrible set. I mean, obviously it's horrible, but I did. They they killed the audience in there. Like they were good. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember like thinking then like. Like God, this isn't this doesn't seem real. Like I don't think I'm that good. You know what I mean? Like this this room is very uh, it's special. It's like the way it all comes together is special. I remember there's this one guy that they had there. Um, uh, he was like the best door guy in La Jolla, and like they would actually like so they like they had like I forget if it was I know yeah it was Wednesday Thursday was their nights where their door guys got to go up. And uh, it was the best of San Diego, right? So it's like their door guys with other San Diego comics, and it was like some of the best comedians out of San Diego. San Diego is kind of a little scene that they it's grown a lot even since then. Like San Diego's, you know, it's like building comedically. Yeah. Uh, back then, there's a guy, and he was a door guy there, and he was just like the best door guy. They they give him twenty minutes, so they give everybody else like seven to ten minutes or whatever this guy got 20 he was just a killer like he worked that room so good and then he'd come up to hollywood 
and then he get a you know an all access pass right up to the original room for you know the the potluck nights at, at the comedy store, which I guess for your listeners they don't know like the potluck is where uh, the first and it starts it goes from seven it starts at seven it goes all night but the first hour is open mic and then like from eight till about eleven maybe like ten thirty it's like door guys of the comedy store go on and then from eleven on it's all paid regulars you know but he would get to go up like right in the heart of like the door guys there and they're like it's a good spot like it's yeah it's, like, if, if you're at that level it's the best spot you'll get in LA you know what I mean yeah and he'd go up there and it's a struggle it was like he was so he learned to work the La Jolla room which is already an easy room but he worked it better than anybody down there and then he'd come up here and it was like you know it's the original room we're, we're not in fantasy land anymore like these people do not give a fuck about you that's what I tell people all all the time starting out. I'm like, you you have to you have to travel around. You have to find out what's funny everywhere, not just in your little room. You know, like, you know, my friend James Johan was just on a few weeks ago, and I was talking to him about you know comics coming off and being like, they're not my crowd. And I'm like, well, do they speak English, motherfucker? Then yeah, dude, that's you know, bullshit. You know, like I, I I get the thing too. Like there's different demographics that like. You know, your material when it's pro- like, I, like, uh, like I've never done really that good in Vegas. Like, just most of the shows I do in Vegas are, are like for like a lot of older people. And I'm talking people like my grandparents' age. You know, and like yeah. maybe part of part of it is they don't really give a fuck what I would have to say because I'm just you know punk ass kid to them. So maybe they're not even listening the way you should. Or you know, my jokes are are they're not like they're like you know I'm definitely. Uh, like, I guess I'm a millennial, I fall into that, so maybe some of my material doesn't, you know, translate up to there, and, uh, and, and so I would struggle more, but that, that really doesn't mean anything, because you could still connect, and so then, uh, one time I was, I was touring with Steve Trevino, and we were, have you ever done, uh, El Paso, what was, what's the spot in El Paso, Tim, with, uh, Bart Reed? Uh, that's the comic strip. The comic strip, I fucking love that place, but he, uh, I remember I went up there one time. That's a military town, and back in the day, I struggled with with that because <laughs> a lot of people in the military thought I was gay. Like, <laughs> like they, I, I had a struggle with like like uh, the first few years. Like you know, everybody's struggling when they're first learning this thing, but like I definitely looked like a huge pussy, you know. Like a lot of people didn't even <laughs> want to hear it. Like, and this was one of those towns. Like, these guys are like roughneck, like you know, like men's men, you know. And I came in there. I've got my fucking you know, my hoodie and my skinny jeans, you know, and I'm just dying. And then I remember telling uh, Trevino, like, because I guess, like, Bart Reed is like, you got to tell, you got to tell this kid to, like, uh, slow down or speed up. It's like, pacing thing I was doing wrong. And Bart Reed, Bart Reed saw it, and he just basically was, like, telling uh, Trevino to let me know. And when he, when he told me that, I was just like, well, dude, it's not even that, man. Like, these people, they don't want to hear anything from me. I got nothing in common with them. And he's like, but dude, you have, you, you need to relate to them. I said, yeah, but I can't relate to them. He's like, no, 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 it's not relate like your material needs to relate. You need to talk to them in a way that relates to them. It's like a tone, you know what I mean? It's like a way you communicate, a way you speak to people. And at the time, I didn't get it, but I knew he was right. I didn't really know what he meant. And I remember, like, by the end of that weekend, I was working it. I understood, like, kind of, like, it was like one of those, you know how, like, you have a lot of these, Tim, like, when, like, it's almost like, you, you learn lessons slowly, but then there's some lessons you learn, and it's just dramatic. It's like, the only way to learn it is, like, it needs to hurt, you know, it needs to be forced into your skull. 
Yeah. And that was one of them. Like that that moment is like in El Paso when I realized like what it really actually means to relate to people. It has nothing to do with the content. It's like literally the way you speak to these people to where they don't have to they don't have to relate to you. I mean, they don't have to like agree with you. I remember getting past that even as a comedy fan, like one of my favorite comedians of all time is Patrice O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill to me is like Mine too. He's great. One of those one of the best ever. I mean, he could do it all. He could, he could write a joke and tell it, or he could just conversationally just destroy. Like, he's just so good. Um, and as much as I love his stand-up, uh, I didn't, I, I, I agreed with less than half the shit he was saying. He's kind of a womanizer. He's kind of like, there's like just shit I didn't, I didn't agree with, but it, was, it wasn't about that. I still thought he was hilarious because it was like watching this idiot's journey. You know what I mean? Like watching him go through these lessons and him, him, Undeniably, like he's being him no matter what. You can't, you can't change Patrice O'Neill. So wherever he goes, he's that. And whether you agree with it or not, it was funny. You know what I mean? So like, even just as a comedy fan, you could see like you don't have to agree with these people. So yeah. The lady part, it's not about the content. It's literally the way that they, their tones, how they, you know, how they pierce your, your attention. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like. Uh, uh, um, I'm sorry. Somebody came in and. Threw me off a little bit. Um, what the heck was that, what we were talking about there at the end? Uh, we were just talking about uh, relating uh, on stage, relating to your audience. Yeah. Might, like, they may not agree and, with you. And you were talking about one of your favorite comics, which is, um, gosh dang it, who Patrice. is this? Patrice, yes. I was in the yeah. green room with him once at the uh, Houston Improv, and we had a good, uh, we had a good conversation about, about being yourself on stage. And I asked him when he figured out how to do that, and he was like, well, one night I was up there, I was drunk, and I was up there, and I was killing, but I realized, like, I can't keep doing, I've got to figure out how to do that without doing that, you know, because I can't be an alcoholic just to do my show, but I want to feel like that all the time, like, conversational. And, uh, and that's where it started for him. And he was a cool dude. And, and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really kiss people's ass or get or bother him too much, you know? And once he figured that out about me, uh, he liked me a lot more. And then he listened to my comedy and, and he, he told me that he thought I was funny, which there's some people that it just means a lot more from. Um, and Patrice was one of them. You get that from, cause you know, Patrice is a bullshit. shit. He wouldn't say that if you didn't think it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and man... He was, did, you, you met him in person a few times, right? I met him once. He, I met him when I was parking cars at the comedy store. He yelled at me one night. <laughs> you know how, like, you have to, like, uh, you've seen, like, how, like, jammed up that lot gets. Like, sometimes when, when you're working and, like, so many cars are coming in and you need to, like, get somebody out from the back. Yeah. There's still cars coming in. So you literally have to park the cars, like, on the sidewalk, on, on the Sunset Strip, you know? Like, people are just standing up there. Like, you have to, like, kind of, like, get them to move out of the way so you can throw a car there. And one time I had to put a car up, uh, Patrice O'Neill was standing right there, and I'm, like, moving a car up. And I, I noticed it right as I started pulling up to him, like, oh, my God, there's Patrice O'Neill. And I pull up, and I get out, and he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? Can't you see I'm standing here? Like, what the fuck is this shit? And I just, like, was so <laughs> petrified. Like, I had nothing, dude. Like, I didn't say anything. I just, like, this guy just kept going. <laughs> like, got out of the car and walked away, just, like, frightened, <laughs> but also kind of, like, stoked that my favorite comedian's yelling at me right now. Like, it's weird, like, 
Wow, he acknowledged me, you know. But then, this is how cool Patrice is, and, and this is the only interaction I've had with this person. Um, he, when I came back to get the car, he was like, yo, come here. And I'm like, oh, fuck, he's going to, like, ring me some more. He's like, hey, dude, somebody just explain to me what you're doing right now. And uh, as a man, and talking to another man, I want to apologize. As a man, I want to apologize to you for the, for yelling at you like that. I didn't know what was going on, and I felt disrespected, but I wasn't, and I disrespected you. So man to man, I'm sorry. Wow. And it was just like, you know, and, and like, it, that's part of what made him so great was there is this humility behind him because like, he was always such a, he was always just such a human everywhere he went. He was never like beyond himself. You know what I mean? Like, he got mad he thought I was like rolling up on him. And then he just realized, oh, this guy's just doing his job. I'm in the way of his job. And to actually be able to, like, yeah. I don't know anybody that would actually, like, say this. Like, hey, sorry about yelling at you. I mean, it had come and went. I mean, this is, like, 10 to 15 minutes after he first yelled at me. But if he, like, made a point to track me down, yeah. let me know that he was sorry about that. Yeah, if, if I ever got famous, man, uh, I, I would like for people to say that about me. I, I never, I never want to be one of those people who doesn't think it's important to go over and apologize to somebody you did something wrong to, even if they're not, for lack of a better way to say it, on your level or any of that shit. You know, like, right. that's just, yeah, yeah. you know, those kind of things. What a what a loss to comedy and just in general that that guy died as early as he did. I know. And, well, dude, I actually had the honor of uh, being, being there his last time on television. I got to uh, write for the roast of Charlie Sheen. Comedy Central. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, he was there, and it was like literally, let's see, everybody has writers, you know, like everybody has like at least five to ten minutes of roast jokes on everybody that they worked on for months. Yeah. And uh, he didn't, he didn't write nothing down. He just went up and started reaming everybody, making fun <laughs> of. Uh, <laughs> but I remember the funniest. I don't remember what the joke was, but like he was ripping up. What's that guy who played Captain Kirk? He's like uh, that old dude. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Captain Kirk from Star Trek. He's the OG Captain Kirk. I mean, he's like... Oh, who's the real guy? William Shatner? William Shatner was there, dude. And he's just reaming Shatner for being old as shit. And, like, 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 Shatner's about to, like, have a heart attack. He's laughing so hard. That was the kind of guy that could, like, rip you and you'd just be laughing. Like, kind of like Don Rickles a little bit. Like, he was so good. And then, like... I, nobody would have thought that that was like the last time that guy was going to be on TV. Like, yeah. I, I think, like within a month, like, because he had a bad stroke and then like a week later he died. It was, this was like just weeks after this. Yeah. It was like one of the, one of the things, you know, watching something in comedy, like, you know you're watching something special. Mm-hmm. And, like this wasn't one of those moments because I didn't know how, you know, how important it was going to be that this was going to be his last time like being on TV. But it's definitely looking back at it like one of the most significant uh pieces of comedy I, i've ever seen live yeah yeah that sucks man he was talk. he had some really funny stuff when i worked with him in houston god it's probably been 12 years ago already he had some really funny stuff about yeah. diabetes and all that stuff and now and you know then for it to end up taking him like that sucks but um that's what got him it's uh we've been on here for i don't know close to 55 minutes is that i wanted to ask you if you knew robin williams before i let you go did you ever meet him uh-huh. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, actually, that's funny. If you go full circle with this, I uh, the first time I ever went to La Jolla, 
uh, was also the first time I ever got paid doing comedy. Yeah. They gave me a check for $100, which I still have. I still have the, the check. I remember Bobby Bobby Lee told me, uh, first time you get paid, like, keep it. doesn't matter what, it, like, how much it is, keep it, because if you work hard enough, you're going to get paid so much that this, whatever you get from this first time doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, keep that for you. He's like, I, I still have a $20 bill, like, in my drawer somewhere. Like, he had the first... $20 bill he ever made doing comedy. I made $8 on the best of Kansas City, but I, I spent that shit probably that night, so. <laughs> well, you I mean, like, it, it's all good, too. You need to, it's like, dude, there were definitely times when I could have used that $100 check. I mean, I was, like, struggling. Yeah. But, uh, um, so I just made my first any kind of dough in stand-up. It was in the form of a $100 check from the La Jolla Comedy Store. That, I came back on a Sunday, so the, yeah, the show's on Friday, Saturday, so on Sunday I was already back at the Hollywood Comedy Store, and I think I was working the back door or, some, or something, and uh, Robin Williams showed up, and it was a big deal, because like I guess like his manager had called during the day, and was like, hey, uh, do you reserve some time for Robin Williams to, to go on tonight, and it, that kind of, that information leaked, and the next thing you know, like the Comedy Store, it was more packed than I had ever seen at that point, you know what I mean, just like off of a, a tip that Robin Williams was going to be that the place was sold out. I mean, talk about rock star. Yeah, you know I mean? no shit. And uh, so he, uh, I'm standing in that back hallway, and uh, uh, he walks up, and he's like, hey, can you find a place for my family? Like, and I just, and at first I didn't even notice it was him. I just, where he saw the guy with the shirt, and, hey, can you find somewhere for my family to sit? And I look up, and, you know, there he is. It's like, and, you know, there's certain stars. I mean, I, I know you're like this, Tim, because you're, you're a real dude, but you probably don't get starstruck too much. And, and we, we see our fair share of famous people, you know what I mean? Like, There's a couple like, people I would, though, and he's one of them. Right, and that's the thing. It's like, he, like he, you feel it. I mean, this is the kind of star power that you feel. Like, it's like when he enters a room, like, something, something goes off. Something's like, whoa, he just, like, just gets colder in here like it's something like he, his presence is he's just a star mm -hmm. you know what I mean like a true charismatic superstar and uh but yeah he, he, he asked me to go find him some seats and I and I ran in and found his folks some some uh, seats I go in the hallway and he comes back down he's like hey thank you for, for doing that for me I was like of course man he's like and he introduced himself he's like what's your name I was like oh, I'm Matt he's like Rob it's good, good to meet you I'm like you've been doing comedy a while of like a few a few months, like how's it going? And, and now, next thing you know, this is, by this point, I'm like in my mind, I'm like I cannot believe I am having a conversation right. with Robin Williams. Like this is like this is the biggest thing I've ever done in comedy at this point. You know what I mean? Like I'm I, I'm just talking to one of the greatest of all time, and he's talking to me like a comedian. He's not talking to me like a fan. He's asking me how it's going. You know, like yeah. I've never felt at that point more like a comedian. But he asked me, he's like, you know, how's it going? And I told him, great, I actually just got paid for the first time. He's like, oh, yeah, where at? And I was like, the La Jolla Comedy Store. And he's like, oh, wow, hey, you know what? That was the first place I ever got paid for doing comedy. Huh. And I was just like, my heart melted. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Like, really? He's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to keep, and he's like, yeah, you're going you're to keep that check, right? And I was like, oh, my God, of course. Like, yeah, dude, don't ever spend that. That's the first one. That's the first of many. Huh. And it was just like this weird moment, this moment that I had with one of my favorite human beings that ever walked the earth, you know? Yeah. Who would have thought I'd get to meet him, much less talk about, talk shop about the thing, and relate on, 
on getting paid in comedy at the same place for the first time. It was just, yeah. I'm telling you, man, there wasn't anything that far into my career that, that meant like that. And that, that held me over for a while. Well, and those little things, man, those little things help you in so many ways. Like, just hearing that Richard Pryor had so much stage fright at certain times in his career made me feel oh, yeah. made me feel better and okay about the fact that I've had that throughout my career a lot of times. There are times where I feel like I'm in my living room and then there are times where I feel like I've never done comedy in my fucking life. And Oh my god. And you know, do you still get that way sometimes? Oh my god, dude. The other night I was up there like, have I ever done this before? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. They're looking at me and I know I'm supposed to start talking. It was like the weirdest fucking thing. Did you ever see, do you ever watch uh, any MMA? You ever watch UFC at all? Some, sure. Okay, so there's Ronda Rousey, right? And Ronda, she gets knocked out by uh, Holly Holm. And then like a year later she makes her comeback against whoever the current champion was. I really don't watch that much anime, but, like, this kind of a lame and putting it together. But she, uh, you know, this is Ronda Rousey at one point, like, the greatest woman fighter on the planet. She's the most famous fighter that there is on the planet, man or woman. She's, like, the, the biggest star in, yeah. in, in MMA. And she's going up against the current champion because she'd been gone for so long. And the current champion's just a badass bitch, you know? Like, she just, she knocks people out. That's her thing. But, you know, Ronda's like this legend, and she comes back after not, years of not fighting, and she literally just stands there, and this, this chick just tees off on her, you know? And, like, she had no offense. Eventually, the ref stops the fight. It was like it was almost like she had never fought before. And when I saw that, like, man, I felt so... I, I never... Like, dude, I know that feeling. I just know it so well. As professional as she is, as much as she's done it, she's trained in this one sport her whole life since she was a little girl, and then you stand up there on the world's biggest stage, and you've already have these championship, this championship record underneath you, and, and you're a star, and then you just you stand up there, and you're like, it's never, you've never been a, you've never been in a fight before. It's yeah. Literally just stands there, wipes girl teeth off on her, and I could totally relate to that. I feel like even just hearing you say that, Tim, because you're you're you've been doing it, you know, like you're you're. You're, you're a journeyman. Like, you've been on the road for... I've been doing it for a living for 17 you know, years. Yeah, fucking eight, dude. I mean, that's, like, more than... That's way more than half my life you've been doing this fucking thing. So, like, the fact that that can even happen to you, like... And it just... It makes you think, like, dude, I, I don't think any of us are too safe, dude. Like, oh. there's a bomb around the corner for all of us. That, and that, you know what? Dude, when things are going too well... Because I feel like statistically, like, we're all men, we're all due, you know? Yeah. The only way you're growing is by bombing, really. Yeah. And I, I just think that no matter what, if things are going really well, I start getting nervous. I'm like, oh, shit, it's coming, dude. Things, I've been I've been killing too much, dude. It's around the corner for me. Yeah. Well, and my I'm friend sure my friend Jason Jason Dixon was like, no, ma you know, you, you, you'll go along in this, and the longer you do it, the more you think, you'll think, well... I might not kill every time, but I don't think I'm gonna bomb anymore. And just about the time you have that thought, you're about to get it. You're about to get your ass handed to you. <laughs> it's a dangerous <laughs> thought, dude. You start thinking like that, just like man. I mean, they, it's it's just like I said, it's around the corner, dude. You go up enough, you're gonna you're gonna get served some humble pie. Even being on stage, like sometimes I'll be headlining a show and it'll be like 15, 20 minutes into it, and I'm thinking, man, I haven't. 
nothing has I haven't dropped a ball yet. Like this is going really well. Just about the thing just about the time you have that thought. I know. Here comes a joke oh, yeah, they're yeah, not yeah, gonna yeah. fucking get at all. Oh dude, that's a, that's a scary one. When you come when you become self aware that you're even thinking like that. It's a never-ending thing. Yeah. That's that's what's so addictive about it is that if you give a shit, you never stop learning and you never stop, you know, falling on your face. My, the, Chuck Chuck Martin had been has been doing comedy like thirty years, and he was on stage a couple years ago in uh, Universal Studios or something, and uh, I forget what the name of that club is, John Lovitz or something. And yeah, he got a big laugh, and then his very next joke didn't get a good laugh. And uh, he was like, God damn it, I should have closed on that last joke. I've been doing this 30 years, and I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Hey, man, I mean, dude, you, you relearn these lessons over and over again, and it's never the last time you're going to learn them. Yeah. Know? I thought that was so funny. Honestly, dude, think, think about it, Tim. Like, when, how, many, how many guys, how many old-timers that have been doing it longer than you even that, like, that you see doing the same safe act? Like, it works. They'll keep doing it, and they can make a living touring around doing the same thing, those guys might be the only ones that that have less struggles with their act or, like, have less bombs because they're doing the thing that they've done for the last 20 years. Like, yeah, yeah verbatim. Word for word, everywhere yeah. they go. Yeah, I mean, those are the people that, like, like they don't, they are bombing as much. The people that are bombing are the ones that are making it, for real. Like, the, those are the ones that are actually growing and, like, becoming, like, building upon acts and new acts and, like, going to new places and finding new people that dig them, you know what I mean? Like, the, like there's no way you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna move on if, if you're not out there trying new shit. There's no way you're not gonna bomb if you are trying new shit. It's, so, it's, it's like, inevitable. Bill Hicks said, uh, a hack can kill every night of the week, you know? Because they're not, they're just doing bullshit, you know? They're just doing swan dives. They're just doing swan dives, and it's like, well, do a gainer, motherfucker. Do a gainer and see if you can nail it, you know? Exactly, exactly, dude. It's, it's not hard to, like, you get that good, like, your first hour or whatever, like, you just build that shit for a lifetime if you want, but you'll be in the same place. You're not going to go further. Yeah, Jason Dixon taught me about that whole degree of difficulty thing, and I talked about, I touched on it couple weeks ago with my friend James but he was always talking about that you know it's like it's easy to kill when you're doing swan dives or you're you know you're you know you're you're doing a the 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 edgiest thing you do is a back dive you know fucking go up there and hit a triple hit a triple lindy and fucking you know then I'll be impressed you know (laughs) just try it man like because how many shows do we do we do that don't matter at all? Ninety nine point nine percent of them don't mean shit, and I have to tell myself that almost before every show I do, just about. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but you know, that's a trained thing to even be able to, to come to terms with that because, you know, before you started stand-up, when you watch it, it's so much bigger than you. It's, like, overwhelming. Yeah. And you think that, you, you think that, you know, Robin Williams is out there killing every night. He always did. It's like, hey, that, by the way, I mean, that night when I saw him do that, do that set, it's not like he did great because he's Robin Williams and everybody was there for him, but it wasn't like, you know, he was rusty. Like, he was, like, yeah. had to get his, Footing, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's we're all we're all vulnerable to get into that that sweet bomb that's gonna just rock our world, you know. Well, that night I that like not that night that Pryor had that epic special the night before, he basically had a oh melt God, he, he had like, a meltdown on stage, you know. Yeah, at the uh, live at the Sunset Strip, and that's one of the greatest ever, if not the greatest, yeah. depending on who you're talking to, yeah. you know. I mean, and, and he, people that were like documentary about that and he like I guess like uh, after his his manager was talking about like how he was just so he was such a pro like prior such a pro that like after that horrific bomb he had for his special he knew he had the next night there yeah. was the first night doing you know taping it over two shows he's like not bothered by it at all it was like he was like yeah whatever I'll get it tomorrow like there was just this stillness inside of him like he wasn't worried that his his set didn't go well. It's like, well, I'm, it's almost like you have to purge that out. You do. You, gotta, you have to get back on stage gotta, as soon as possible and and yeah. and do it again because I've had those that are just. I had one a few years ago at the Laugh Factory, and I'll let you go on this. But I was I was doing this. Uh, I was at the Laugh Factory, and I had bitten the inside of my mouth, which can cause canker sores. And I had like <laughs> I had like twelve in my mouth at one fucking time, to where I couldn't hardly eat. I was like, it was killing me. I'd lost like 10 pounds, and I went and did the late night spot at the Laugh Factory, and uh, it was like one of those spots where you follow Dane Cook and the, half the crowd leaves and all that, and yeah. and I like it felt like I hadn't eaten in days, I was all weak, and long story short, I just ate it so bad, I don't know how I did my time, it felt like an out-of-body experience, like it was just the worst, like sweat was rolling down my back, I heard some lady off to the side say, he's terrible. And and I couldn't believe I was up there thinking like how is she saying that about me? But I was, dude. That night I was fucking terrible, and I don't know how I stood up there for eighteen minutes getting kicked in the balls, but I did. <laughs> and you know, but I but after that I was going to like a, a club on the road, and and I just went and purged it like you said immediately, and I didn't. I try not to ever fucking think about that that set. Um, <laughs> but you know it happens man it happens to everybody and and yeah learn knowing those things makes you feel better yeah so no yeah, one's immune to it too, with a, a guy like you know like uh you know work career comedian now so like no matter what i'm gonna have another show good or bad it's, there's gonna be another one and i always feel like when i have a bad one it's like there's no way the, like, let's say I have, like, two bad... Like, I remember, like, a few weeks ago, it's like, I just... I don't know what it was, but that week, you know, like, I just was... I had a weird funk, dude. Like, I couldn't... Even, even like, good shows were, like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just wasn't feeling it. I don't know what needed to happen. But I remember towards the end of that week, I was like, like, oh, it's about to get great. There's no way I'm, like, dumb. There's no way that I... I, I I'm never going to be able to figure it out again, you know what I mean? Right. Like, and just becoming aware of that, too. So it's like... Like, hey man, statistically, I'm 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 due for like a killer set. Like, yeah. I mean, I've worked too fucking hard, and there's no way that these few like 
shows are going to determine the rest of my career. So we do, we do that too, man. Like we put so much on ourselves. Like every time, like it's like this do or die thing when it's really not. It's, yeah. It's, it's only just, it's just do. It's just, it, you're going to keep doing it no yeah. matter what. Like you're not going to die. When you go up there, the worst possible case scenario, it's going to be a little embarrassing. You may think about it when you wake up the next morning, but you got to show that night, you know, and then you're going to go do that and you're probably going to kill it because you've been doing it long enough. You know what you're doing. Anytime you don't kill, it's like, it's, it's, it's never, I mean, it's your fault, but it's like, you know, things, something else is going on. It's not like how you usually are. Yeah, I tell people all the time, the most, the most consistent thing about comedy is the inconsistency, you know? Oh God. Yeah. You just never know. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Are you going up to the store tonight? Yeah, I'm planning on it. Okay, well, I'll probably be up there. Let's make sure and get a picture, and I'll probably upload this thing tomorrow, and uh, then we'll have a picture for the podcast. Uh, yeah, dude, we'll do it. All right, buddy. if I'm uh, not there tonight, uh, we'll, we'll still figure something out, dude. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I, mean, I'm waiting. I, I, I might have to go to Long Beach to do a show, but okay. I'm just waiting to hear back, but All right. anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay, cool, man. Is there anything you want to uh, want to plug or anything before we get off here? Where can people uh, find you? Oh, you know what? I'm in uh, Madison uh, on the 17th and 18th this month. Uh, check my Instagram for for uh, the deeps, if you will. And uh, Matt, at Matt Edgar. Matt has one T in it. Check that shit out. And uh, I also have all my other dates up there, so go, go look at that. I'm doing a lot of touring early next year so okay you might, uh you might see me coming to your town cool all right buddy well thanks man i really appreciate it i had fun talking to you and i'll see you soon awesome Tim. thank you very much for the call dude this was fun you bet matt all right everybody i appreciate you guys listening as always make sure you check out timgathercomedy.com go to makingithappen.com m-a-c-a-n ithappen.com help out little bow making and uh my new dates are up on my website and uh, subscribe on iTunes, give us good ratings, all that stuff. We appreciate it. And uh, have a good week. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.
Media. Mm.